Welcome back to Discipleship 102. Jesus continues what he's always done, walking the countryside, healing people, and telling them the good news that God loves them and has drawn near to them, and that the kingdom of God is here. And as usual, on a Sabbath, we find Jesus in a synagogue teaching. One of the people listening is a woman who has been bent over for 18 years. The text says she was crippled by a spirit, which by this time you know is simply how this culture explains any illness, physical, mental, or emotional. Jesus sees the woman. Jesus sees her. Jesus sees the woman. This is simply not done in synagogue. The woman should be invisible, but Jesus sees her and sees her need. He beckons her to him and says, dear woman, you have been freed from the weakness within you. When Jesus says this word translated as freed, it's the same word used for released, being rid of, and divorced. Jesus said to her, Dear woman, you have been divorced from your sickness. I love that. Then he lays his hands on her, and she is immediately unbent. She straightens up and begins to glorify God. You can imagine the amazement and joy among the people. This woman's faith community had seen her suffer all these years. But the synagogue leader sees Jesus as a threat. He is indignant that Jesus would have the temerity to heal on the Sabbath. He says to the people, don't come on this Sabbath to be healed. There are six other days of the week for that. (laughs) What a horrible thing to say. This whole healing on the Sabbath thing just keeps coming up and the leaders are seem to be increasingly desperate around it. It seems like it's the only legality the religious leaders can find to attack Jesus with. But Jesus steps up and apparently speaking to all of the synagogue leaders present says, you hypocrites, don't you untie your ox or donkey on the Sabbath in order to give it water? This daughter of Abraham has been tied up by the adversary for 18 years. Should she not be set free on the Sabbath? And the synagogue leader and those with him are humiliated. But the crowd rejoices at the glorious things Jesus is doing. Once again, Jesus begins to make his way back towards Jerusalem from the towns and villages where he's been teaching. As he goes, someone asks him, Lord, are only a few people being saved? Now, I don't know why people would get the impression that Jesus in any way restricts access to God and to healing and to wholeness. I guess that's what the people are used to from the other religious leaders. If anything, Jesus has pushed against any such boundaries. He regularly saves, meaning healing, making whole, and rescuing. That's what that word means. 
He saves everyone, not only Jews, but even people who are not children of Abraham. And as always, Jesus hears the underlying question that is not spoken out loud. What the person is really asking, if translated into modern lingo, is if only a few people will go to heaven. Jesus' answer reveals a great deal about what the people of his day believe the end times will be like. Here's his answer. He says, do your best to go in through the narrow door because many will try to enter in but won't be able to. Jesus said something similar to the disciples back in the Sermon on the Mount, but the context was completely different. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, first, take the plank out of your own eye before trying to take the speck out of your neighbor's. Ask for what you need. It'll be given to you. Treat others as you would have them treat you, for this is the law and the prophets in a nutshell. It was only then, he said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is spacious that leads to loss, waste, destruction, perishing. Let's soak this in for a moment. In what you might call Discipleship 101, the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told the disciples to mind their own faults and shortcomings, not those of others, to be generous to others, knowing that all they need as disciples will be provided. For Jesus, this is the way to life, regardless of your circumstances. This kind of deep security and deep knowing that God can handle all the other people, all the other circumstances, all of our needs and theirs, is where the entire Bible, both Old and New Testaments, has pointed. Not many people are able to let go to this extent and rest in trusting God. It is a narrow gate indeed that leads to peace and rest and life now, rather than what we are constantly invited to by the world, waste, anxiety, and loss. So how is that teaching in the Sermon on the Mount different than what Jesus is teaching to this larger group of disciples in Discipleship 102? Well, for one thing, Jesus uses a different word here. He uses door rather than gate. And in fact, the entire metaphor is different. This metaphor is set at the narrow door of a house, not the gate to a highway. Jesus says that many will try to enter the house. They'll bang on the door after the homeowner has shut it. But the homeowner will say, who are you? I don't know you. And they will say, but we ate and drank with you. You taught in our wide roads. The Greek here, meaning wide roads, is the same word Jesus used back in the Sermon on the Mount. But the homeowner says, depart, all you who worked for injustice. Now, I'm translating the Greek directly for you here. Where most Bible translations say evildoers, the Greek is actually two words, which mean workers of injustice. And that gives a very different color to this whole passage, in my opinion. Jesus seems to be saying, it doesn't matter how well you know me. 
What matters is whether you are working for injustice or not. Maybe this passage could be modernized to say, but but we took communion every Sunday. We heard your word taught from the pulpit. Is it possible that taking communion and going to church will not outweigh actively, intentionally working for injustice, trying to tilt the playing field in our favor, or putting our finger on the scale of justice the rest of the week? Sobering thoughts. I want Jesus to recognize me when I come to the door. I want to have been working right alongside him all this time, fighting injustice, not perpetrating it. Both of these passages have to do with how we walk and work and have life now. But even for those who miss the narrow way, Jesus doesn't talk about burning them to a crisp or torturing them in everlasting fire for working against the kingdom of heaven. You know what he does say the consequence of their action is? They'll miss the big party at the end. Jesus says, People will come from east, west, north, and south, and will recline in the kingdom of God, which means, obviously, eat. It's, a, it's like a banquet. That's, that's what recline is in this culture. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be there. So will all the other prophets, but you will be cast out. I want to stop here and say that the words cast out in this particular usage, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, mean being deprived of power in this world. The lexicon refers to this exact passage when providing this definition. People who work for injustice and for their own gain will be stripped of their power in the end. That's what's going to happen. They're going to miss the party and they're going to be stripped of their power. Jesus says, you will weep and gnash your teeth as you watch the big party. He says, there are those who are last who will be first, and there are those who are first who will be last. So let's think about that last bit. Who would be first now, but last in the kingdom of heaven? I'm thinking it's these very people Jesus is talking to. I wonder if these religious leaders try to seat themselves at the best seats in the banquet in the kingdom of heaven and are thrown out of the banquet. I wonder if in their repentance and grief, God will have mercy on them. I've learned to always bet on God's mercy. This whole thing is a metaphor, a parable, so we don't want to stretch it too far, but it's an interesting thought. Certainly, the homeowner does not murder or torture those banging on his door. He just doesn't let them into the big celebration. So now we're going to hop over to John's gospel for a bit to pick up some intriguing stories. John says Jesus heads back up to Galilee because it's getting too dangerous for him to walk around in Judea. The Jews, presumably the religious leaders, are trying to find a way to kill him. But Jesus can't stay up in Galilee forever. There are several festival days during the year, the holy days, that require every Jewish man to come to Jerusalem. And one of those days, the Festival of Booths, is coming up. All of the Jewish festivals commemorate God's rescue, 
recognition of God's care, God's bountiful blessing, God's delight in our joy and happiness, God's provision to make us holy so we can be together with him, and God's constant provision for our rest and safety. These are major foundational pillars of the law in the Old Testament. But only, actually, only three of the festivals require presence in Jerusalem. The rest of them are celebrated locally. The the first two where you have to be in Jerusalem are the Passover and Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Festival of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost. These are both in the spring. The third one, the Festival of Booths, is in the early fall. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot in Hebrew. It's this fabulous festival that is basically a big community event where they build little one-room lean-tos and everyone camps out for a week. Everyone is to gather palm branches and willow and other branches and simply rejoice. How wonderful is that? The only problem is that the Jews who are trying to kill Jesus know he has come to Jerusalem for this big festival. They know he has to come to Jerusalem for this big festival. He's got to build his own lean-to. That's that's part of it. He'll be away from his protective crowds at least part of the time. So if they can catch him alone, they've got him. At home in Galilee, Jesus' brothers mock him. They think he's a big fake. They say, no celebrity does anything in secret. Since you're such a big shot, show yourself to the world. Go back down to Judea so all your disciples will see the things you do. I think we often miss the truth that Jesus' own family rejected him. Earlier in his ministry, they'd tried to forcibly take him away, saying he had lost his mind. That's in Mark 3.21. And if you want to know more, you can find it back in class 101 in the Teachings and Parables of Jesus series. And now, more than a year later, they are still hostile and mocking him. I think his brothers are trying to force Jesus into danger. I think they're trying to force him to go, if not alone, then with them. They are taunting him to show himself to the world as a celebrity. They think the rest of the world will mock him like they do. It's quite possible that they don't know what a big deal he has become across Palestine. But that phrase, show yourself to the world, means something else entirely to Jesus, doesn't it? For Jesus, it means revealing himself in Jerusalem as the Messiah. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Any time will do for you. The world isn't able to hate you, but the world hates me because I bear witness that its works are evil. That is so true. It has been true of all God's prophets. Back in Exodus, Pharaoh's heart was hardened just by the sight of Moses. So it is now with Jesus and the Jewish leaders. 
The Jewish leaders are trying to kill Jesus, but they cannot take him openly in front of the crowds, for the crowds love him and revere him as a great prophet and healer sent by God. Jesus tells his brothers, you go on to the festival. I'm not going to this feast because my time has not come to its fullness. We know Jesus understands that his end is near, but he's never given his disciples an exact date. He always just says soon. I think Jesus is still and patient, waiting on the father to tell him when. But he does know he should not go into Jerusalem with his brothers. He must either stay in the large crowds of his followers or he must go in secret. Jesus decides to go in secret. So Jesus' brothers leave without him. After they leave, Jesus leaves for the festival too. Now, wait a minute. It looks like Jesus flat out lied to his brothers. He told them he wasn't going to this feast. Jesus lying? That does not resonate with our understanding of Jesus, does it? And that means a little investigation of the Greek is in order. There was nothing obvious in the text, so I pulled out my Greek New Testament that is used by scholars all over the world when checking something like this. The verse we're looking at is John 7, verse 8. The particular bit in question is where Jesus says he is not going. The word not is ouk in Greek. And sure enough, the text indicates there is a footnote, footnote two, about that word. A footnote means there are differences between manuscripts as to what word or phrase should have been put here. Um, so we can look at the footnote for this verse. The word used in the text, in, in this case, ook, will be listed. And after it will be a list of all the manuscripts that use that particular word. The ones we want to pay attention to are the first ones in the list. That first one that looks like a fancy N is a major manuscript. It represents the Sinaiticus manuscript. It carries a lot of weight in age and authenticity. So the Sinaiticus uses ook, which means not. After that, there will usually be some capital letters. Generally speaking, a manuscript designated with a capital letter is more authoritative than those with a lowercase letter or other symbol. Capital letters represent manuscripts that are called the unseals. They are the older manuscripts written in all caps without spaces um, before upper and lowercase were even invented. So in this case, ook appears in the Sinaiticus and in the unseal D. Other than that, it only appears in lesser manuscripts. But there's another choice. Other manuscripts don't have uk, which means not. They have hupo, which means not yet. And look how many unseals have not yet in them. Seven of them. That's a lot of weight. And that makes this a pretty even 50-50 guess for scholars as to which word to use. Should they could use it's 50-50. They could use not or not yet. It's the weight of the Sinaiticus and the unsealed D against all seven of these other unseals. 
And just to prove that this is indeed a 50-50 choice, you only need to go down to verse 10 to see that the editors of the Greek New Testament pick exactly the other way around the next time these same manuscripts disagree. In verse 10, they choose the word the seven unseals use and not what the Sinaiticus uses. Very interesting. I'm not suggesting you need to do all this. I just want you to have a sense of the amount of decision-making that scholars are putting into these translations and, and, and that there are different versions of these verses among the different manuscripts and fragments and papyri that we have. Um, different scholars are going to make different decisions, and those decisions can make a world of difference in how we understand our Bibles. In this case, I don't think Jesus lies to his brothers. I think we should make the other word choice. I think Jesus says, I'm not yet going to this feast. And in fact, if you look closely, some of your translations may have a little footnote to this effect. At the festival, the religious leaders are on the lookout for Jesus, asking, where is he? The crowds whisper about him. Some people say he's a good man. Others say he's leading people astray. So the, the crowds are beginning to, they're beginning to shift. It's not, um, not everybody is behind Jesus anymore. There's, there's some, a little sway in public um, opinion here. But no one in the crowd dares say anything out loud about him for fear of the religious leaders. It's not until halfway through the festival that it's safe enough for Jesus to go to the temple and teach. And as usual, his teaching blows away the Jews crowded into the temple courts. They are amazed that this uneducated country boy with the Galilean accent could have such insight. But Jesus tells them, I'm not teaching my own ideas. My teaching comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who wants to do what God wants will come to know whether I'm teaching my own ideas or whether my teaching comes from God. Anyone speaking their own ideas does it for their own glory. But the man seeking the glory of God is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. He says to them, Moses gave you the law, but not a single one of you keeps it. Why are you trying to kill me? But they answer, you are demon possessed. Who's trying to kill you? <laughs> As if Jesus doesn't know, right? Jesus says, I heal a man on the Sabbath and you are all flabbergasted. But you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath and do not think you're breaking the law. Why are you so angry with me? Stop judging by outward appearances and judge righteously instead. Then some of those in the crowd start muttering, wait a minute, isn't this the guy the religious leaders are trying to kill? But look, he's right here in public and they're not doing a thing against him. Have they changed their minds? Have they decided he's the Messiah after all? Then, then they say, oh, no, 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 no. He can't be the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. But we know where this guy is from. Jesus hears them and says, yes, yes, you do know me and you know I am from Galilee. But I am not here for myself. The one who sent me is true. 
but you do not know him. I know him because he sent me. And that, of course, infuriates all of the men in the temple court, and they try to seize Jesus. But he slips away because his time has not yet come. But some of the people in the crowd believe Jesus and say, how could the Messiah perform more signs than this man has? Well, the Pharisees overhear these murmurs, and in alarm that the tide might be turning in favor of Jesus, they send the temple guards to arrest him now. Well, apparently, the temple guards can't find him right away because Jesus pops up again teaching the crowd. He tells them, I'll only be with you for a little while. Then I'm going back to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you won't find me because where I'm going, you cannot come. The Jews look at each other and say, what in the world is he talking about? Is he going to go live among the Greeks, the Gentiles? Or will he go preach to the Jews scattered all over the world? What does he mean we can't come where he's going? Finally, the seventh and last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stands up and shouts, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. As scripture says, rivers of living water will flow out from anyone who believes in me. Well, as far as I can tell, there's no particular passage in scripture where this is promised about the Messiah. But there certainly are numerous prophecies and promises of God giving living water to his people and promises that God's people will be a blessing to all of humanity. The point is obviously that we're not just to drink of the spirit to satisfy ourselves, but that the same spirit will overflow us to give life to a thirsty world. We, we are satisfied and we overflow to satisfy everyone else. And sure enough, John inserts a little explanation here saying Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit that believers would receive later after Jesus was glorified. John, of course, is writing in retrospect, as are all the gospel writers. John knows what happens after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. But we haven't got to that part yet. So we're just going to tuck this little note in our bonnet for later. Some of the people hearing Jesus say he must be the prophet, meaning the prophet like Moses. This was a prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. While other people say he is the Messiah. But others just keep saying, but wait, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Everyone knows the Messiah will come from the town of Bethlehem, King David's hometown. And so the people are divided. Some of them even want to seize him, but no one dares lay a hand on him. The temple guards come back to the Jewish leaders empty-handed. The chief priests and the Pharisees say, why didn't you arrest him? And the guards say, no one has ever spoken like this man does. And the Pharisees reply, what? You mean he fooled you too? Where did the leaders believe in him? It's only this mob who believe. They know nothing about the law. A curse be upon them. But Nicodemus is one of these leaders. He's the one who snuck out to meet Jesus in the nighttime to ask him questions. 
Nicodemus is very afraid that the chief priests and the Pharisees are making a terrible mistake. He's afraid Jesus may very well be the Messiah. Nicodemus says, does our law condemn a man without a trial? But the other religious leaders scoff at him and say, are you from Galilee too? Look it up. A prophet is not raised out of Galilee. I have to say, the attitude of the Pharisees, that they know what scripture says and that Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah, sounds so much like some Christians. So many people are convinced that the Bible is in plain English, cut and dried, and that they know exactly what it says in every respect. I think this might be a good time to reflect on this. Hey, welcome back. Yay. So can you give us all the answers? We didn't get all the questions done. (laughs) We had good dialogue. We had good dialogue. Well, I'd, the I'd, ra- I, I'd rather hear your dialogue and then we can talk about the questions. What y'all, what y'all talk about? We talked about the point where the Messiah will perform signs, wonders, and miracles, but some Jews also believe Satan and demons could do the same. Right. They, kept, was, uh, they kept accusing him of being possessed by Beelzebub, right? You know, I'm not so familiar with those things, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, part of the accusation was, well, you're only doing this through the power of Beelzebub, which is like another word for whatever you call evil personified, right? You're demon possessed, even in this lesson, you know, they kept saying you're demon possessed. Well, and we we looked at it through replacing the word Jews with people because yeah. it's about people. And we talked about different things about intent, doing, doing things for people and what your intent is and, you know, what you're getting out of it, why you're doing what you're doing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe if it's not something you should be doing. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, not to beat up on anybody, but we talked about some of the mega churches and the celebrity pastors and their behaviors, their opulent lifestyles, and that being on the backs of, of people with very little and um, people who are believing that the widow who gave her last of whatever it was she gave, and they give everything they can possibly give, even sometimes to their detriment, for this ministry, yet there's sometimes some decision making that is somehow revealed that it's not necessarily something, you know, without judging ourselves, it's not necessarily a positive thing. Mm-hmm. And it's hurtful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that part comes back to realizing that all of our money comes to us from God, belongs to God, however much of it we have or don't have, to be used by God. It's not for our, just like power is not for our glory. Our money is not for our glory. It's the same thing. 
Um, and so I think there is holiness in the giving that people do, the sacrificial giving. I would not want to be standing in the shoes of someone who took that money for a for a personal lifestyle, you know? Well, someone shared an experience that they saw it one way and their friend they were talking to who was a member of one of those type of things saw it a completely different way. And they shared what their friend saw and what they saw and that we just got to work on being judgy ourselves mm-hmm. um, in those situations. But it it's hard when you see something like that to see it from the other side. Well, it is. Yeah, what a- Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I want to hear well, you. I was, I was the one that Julia was trying to. Well, you know, when we had the PPP or PPE or what, you know, the money from during COVID. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And there was this pastor, I, I don't know what he did, but I mean, he he was involved in some kind of ministry, but he bought the jet, he got the money, bought the jet, and then when his family tweeted, hey, we're in Florida or wherever, you know, enjoying this vacation, we took this brand new jet, and I mentioned to my friend who belongs to, a, I mean, it would be considered mega church in her area, and I said, that's, you know, that's that's taking, this is the intent of this money. This guy had enough money, but then he turned around and put on it. Well, he's blessed from God. He's doing God's work. And, you know, I'm just like, this is like taking, no, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and, sorry, and I just, I, we saw it differently. And, and, um, you know, we were talking about Satan and demon and you think of Satan and demon doing evil. I looked at that person as though they're evil doing evil. And, you know, my friend had the, well, they're blessed by God. And, you know, like the Joel Olsteins, well, they deserve their $50 million home and they deserve their eight jets. And because they're doing God's word, it's like, well, but then you've got, you know, the people who are taking 50% of their pension or whatever and sending it in to support these guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that the rationale on the other side um, at being the person collecting that money is very seductive because the person leading the large organization realizes how much work that is. They realize how integral they are to that work that, and they realize that their skill, they, You know, the rationale is that their skills are worth as much as any other CEO, you know, out there in in the world. Um, So the rationale is very seductive. Um, But I do come down on the side of I think it is wrong (laughs) to take money that is meant for ministry and use it in an opulent lifestyle. I I do also, I mean, Jesus himself said, you know, the people that you're ministering to will support you so that you can continue to minister that that's a thing. That's okay. You know? Um, but, but it's clearly, it's a a slider bar here. Uh, and you know, well, in the, in the questions, um, I, I kind of listed out some of the things, one of them being that 
the Bible said in Micah 5 that though you are small, Bethlehem, which is not in Galilee, um, out of you, Bethlehem, one will be a someone will come who's going to be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old, everlasting. That is the verse that the Pharisees were hanging their hats on. They were saying, Jesus is from Galilee. He's not from Bethlehem. And it doesn't matter that he teaches with power. He's a country boy with a Galilean accent. He can't be the Messiah. And then they said, you know, and then, and then they said the, the Messiah, well, the people said the Messiah is supposed to perform, is supposed to heal people. Specifically, the Messiah is supposed to um, heal the lame, give sight to the blind, you know, the deaf will hear all these things. Jesus is ticking all the boxes and then son, he's, he's raising from the dead. That wasn't even on the list. You know? <laughs> and, um, and, and they're saying, so they're saying, well, that would say he's the Messiah, but then there's this whole, yeah, but evil is in the world and it does all these bad things and it can do, you know, people can be demon possessed. Maybe he's demon possessed. And, Jesus, you know, knocked, knocked that down, that whole rationale down as being stupid because the devil wouldn't work against himself kind of thing, wouldn't cast himself out. And, and so some people end up saying, well, you know, he's come from Galilee and he, he does all these signs, but he's from Galilee. He must be the prophet like Moses. He can't be the Messiah. And Jesus stands firm saying, None of that matters. None of that matters. What matters is God sent me. I wonder what the what the religious leaders would have done with Ancestry.com. But they had it. <laughs> they did it made it way to Matthew. <laughs> and Luke. Absolutely. And look, they, they got it. But That's nowadays they could really look through those leaves. That's right. So given this mindset that the religious leaders had, we're, we can look from hindsight and say, golly, how dumb could they be? Jesus was clearly the Messiah, right? So what was their mistake? What, what was their mistake then? What did they, what were they doing wrong here? I think they were too focused on the narrow interpretation of the rules, the specific rules from the Torah and the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. And they just said anything that doesn't fall in these lines is an outlier and not to be considered. Well, the rest of y'all think what, what's their mistake? Well, that thing about circumcision on the Sabbath, yet not letting someone stand straight. Yeah. Why? What's the difference? It's a, it's a, well, I guess the circumcision or the breast would be a dedication to God and one of health, secondary. But isn't the person who's healed that couldn't? stand up straight and was hurting and in pain, isn't their testimony a dedication to God? 
Absolutely. They just reversed this. They did it for health and then a dedication to God. Yeah. And Jesus has said consistently, my work, the, the miracles I'm doing are testimony. <laughs> They're like witness that I came from God, but you're not believing it. But what about, what about the, the fact that they kept coming back to the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. Therefore, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. Well, apparently they didn't know that. So So what do y'all think? I think that, that there are two ways that we accept things as human beings. Number one are those people who are wishful and they're going to believe no matter what. And I think those were the ones who were like, yeah, yeah, this is God, the (laughs) son of God. And then there's the others who are skeptical and they're like, yo, but, 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 and they have all these buts to say, no, it can't be. And I just think that's human nature. We're one way or the other, right? We're either pessimistic or optimistic. That's a good point. Good point. I want to tell you guys a story. Okay. okay, it's going to be a quick one. I've never told anyone this. Years ago, when I was poor and living on a couch, I worked at McDonald's. And our McDonald's was open on Thanksgiving um, because we're so close to Mexico that people in Mexico don't celebrate Thanksgiving. So ours would stay open. And it was, it was dead and it was cold. We had probably, now understand we're a desert. We had like four inches of snow already fall. The temperature was probably like 10 degrees outside, windy, just cold. And so it's just myself and a cook. And the door opens. It's probably 1030 or so at night. And this man walks in and he's got like a wool blanket or robe tied with a rope and sandals. And, you know, I first look at him because I am judgmental. Yo, y'all. I am judgmental and I'm part of me taking this is trying to chill out. Cause man, I'm a somebody, I'm a Scorpio too. So my first thought is just knock them out. So anyways, this dude walks, this dude walks into McDonald's and I'm like, man, this, this guy must be tripping on acid. And so he comes up to me and he says, I said, sir, may I help you? And he goes, may I have a cup of coffee, but I don't have any money. And I'm like, oh, dude. So I go, okay. And so then I start feeling sorry for him. And so I go, sir, would you like something to eat? We have hamburgers and that. And he says, I eat no flesh. And he's got a dog with him too. And I said, well, you know, we we have fish. And he said, no, could I just get a cup of coffee? And then I said, okay, do you want some cream with that? And he says, no, milk is for the nursing babies, not for me. And I was like, what the heck? And so I gave him the coffee. I ended up getting written up for it. But it was after he walked out the door and just kind of disappeared. Boom. And so to this day, I go, wow, was that was that somebody important? Or was it just some homeless dude on acid? You, you understand? And And at that time, I was at a crucial part of my life where I was selling drugs to make money and you know, I was, I was at that fork in the road and it really had a profound uh, impact on my life. Not that I'm an angel. God knows I'm far from it, which is part of why I'm here. But I was like, 
wow. And to this day, I wonder, because it was just bizarre as well, he, he was an angel to you. Pardon me? He brought you to a place of thinking. Yeah. And yes. Of, yes. So he blessed you. Regardless and it was also a time I had a good friend of mine. We, we had worked together um, in a shop. And Caesar was electrocuted at 19 and died right in front of all of us. He had a six-month-old baby. And so I was pissed off at God. And I was like, you know what? If God exists, why would he let this happen to a good guy who just had a baby? So, yeah, it was, it was really a time in my life when I was questioning a lot of things. Wow. wow. Was it God? I could have been some stoner. Thanks for sharing. Both. <laughs> yeah. Right. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. People wow. come and go. People weave in and out of our lives. We don't always know. Yeah. But thankful that they in your case. I mean, thank be thankful they came. It was yeah. like I'm thankful they showed up because I'm not sure you'd be here otherwise. No, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Makes makes you wonder, huh? It does. It does. How God shows up in it. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was saying here. He was saying, I'm here. I'm telling you the good news. But I never told Yeah, I never told anybody because everybody's gonna think what a what a moron, you know. (laughs) Not at all. No. Not at all. I think I definitely I know God reaches out and touches us. God knows when we're at those crossroads. And you know, if that same person had showed up with the same message in a three-piece suit. You might have not recalled it. It might not have hit you in the same way. But instead, what you saw, what you heard, what you experienced, you interacted in a way that you knew could get you in trouble at work, but was the right thing to do at the time. And it did get you in trouble. And it did speak to your heart. And it is still with you all these years later. That's not coincidence. Or is it? Certainly not a small thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a small thing. And I guess I was hoping that we would see that by clinging to our image of what the Messiah ought to be, which is not this acid stoner, you know, you know, it's clinging to our image of, well, he's got to be from Galilee. I mean, he's got to be from Bethlehem. He's got to be, will cause us to miss Jesus. We'll miss him. We won't recognize him because because we're hanging on to these words that we know and and god is not about the this these little one-off 
words. It's God is about the underlying big principles of love and mercy and compassion. You know, it is no surprise that you touched God and God touched you in an act of compassion and risky compassion at that, you know, who knows who that guy was. But it is no surprise that your heart is touched deeply in a moment where you put yourself out there, you know, into the unknown. And I think that's what Jesus calls us to, not to safety and security and, you know, and knowing always and knowing all the details. I think we're called into the moment to live to live with mercy and compassion and justice to do what is just and what, you know, and what it was just in, in Anne's story was to give the poor freezing guy a cup of coffee. (laughs) That was just, it may not have been quote, right. It wasn't according to the rules, but it was the just thing to do. You know, Gail, when I looked at your questions, the third one about spending a great deal of time and effort on study of end times, revolution, end time prophecies, etc. That com- that question made me uncomfortable because I don't spend a lot of time on that. I'm sure it's important. But it's not changing how I want to live my life and how I want the trajectory of my life to go. I want to work on the things here and now that I can control. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I was watching the news last night and something came to my attention and I told my husband, Hey, this may not be the best um, thing I ever say, but I feel this way about this situation. And as I spoke, I said, well, wait, maybe this applies. And well, wait, maybe this applies. And I'm realizing, okay, that was a little judgmental. I need to work on this and see where I stand on this situation rather than just, oh, here it is. This is my thought. Because as I talked it out and as I heard myself, I'm an auditory learner, as I heard myself I went well that's not right (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah so my thought is working on who I am now the end times will be the end times they will come I seriously doubt it's in my days if it is I have my fire insurance I'm getting in the pearly (laughs) gates my name's in the book I got dunked good, full immersion, you know, full immersion Baptist church, wet (laughs) mascara running down my face. You're covered. (laughs) I'm covered. I'm covered. And there, there are a lot of people who spend a great deal of time coming through the old prophecies and, and also the things Jesus will say as um, that Jesus says in the new Testament and, um, coming up with 
exactly how they think the 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 end times will be um, going through revelation and and i have done that myself you know if you look on my website there is a class out there a series of classes out there on revelation that was done you know 20 years ago uh, when when i thought that way and and so much of what is in there is valid i mean it was good teaching just saying but 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 i (laughs) come at things from a different way now and i come at them more from what this what jesus was trying to tell those pharisees it was it's it's not about the specific words it's about who you are and that's what julia is saying here it it's it's not really she doesn't study that stuff which it's it's great i think it's a good idea to study it we will get to it at some point you know in our class series um but but and you can do that series or not as you wish but but it's 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 much more important who we are in this moment now and so when somebody comes to me i get questions all the time from people who who write me or contact me through the website and say well do you think so and so is the antichrist or what do you think about this and um and i'm just like you know what if you read history, there are whole movements of people who believe so-and-so was the Antichrist across all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm not going to make a call on that. Uh, you know, my feeling is I'll know it when it happens. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll know which, I'll know where Jesus is when it happens. I'll know what's evil and what's not when it happens because I'm steeped in these basic big foundational pillars of what God is in relation to to us that's what I want that's all what I want to do that's what I want for you that's what I want for me all righty any other wonderful comments from you guys what was the answer to number two is it clear in their moment in time that Jesus is the Messiah why or why not uh I think it, it, the answer is yes. Um, it is definitely clear that he is the Messiah because Jesus was the witness. He witnessed, he was the, he himself said he was God backed him up with all the signs and wonders. Um, Jesus teaching said he was just everything, uh, he, Everything about him, it was clear that he was the Messiah. He fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies in every way. And yet, at the same time, it was not clear to people that he was the Messiah. The answer is both and. It was not. I was going to say that. To people that he was the Messiah. And what I was trying to get at with these questions was what was blocking their view. And I think I it's think, the rules. Yeah, I think it is the the words they were clinging to. They had a particular, they had put everything in a particular shape, form. It was going to happen like this, 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 and this. And things weren't happening like this, 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 and this. So they missed it. I think, I think if you were to take the prophecies and make an outline, it hit all of it. But they had a narrative. Yeah, I remember, I remember that um, Renee 
said a, a couple of weeks ago that she didn't know what she thought anymore. <laughs> you know, as <laughs> as we were, and and my response was, "That's a really good place to be." Yes, <laughs> is is simply being open to where the spirit is moving right now in your life, in your sphere of influence. This was a great class. Thank you. I love you. I see y'all. We should have more people back. Martha's Martha's traveling. Just, I mean, we've got lots of folks out, but um, we should have more folks back next week and we'll see you then.